You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. The CBLDF podcast is part of our ongoing educational program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode we talk to Katie Skelly, cartoonist and author, whose new book, My Pretty Vampire, is upcoming from Fantagraphics Books. We talked to Katie about Guido Crepax and Milo Minara in particular, with a general conversation about European erotica and a couple of other diversions. This podcast had an unexpected break over the past year while the office of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and the staff relocated from New York City to Portland, Oregon. That took a little bit more energy out of us than we thought, so so we had kind of a year break here with the podcast, but we're looking forward to getting back on track with it, and I think that this interview is a pretty good start for a new season. So without further introduction, here is cartoonist and author Katie Skelly. It's all so hazy, may sound crazy, there wasn't a star in the sky. Hello, my name is Katie Skelly. I'm a cartoonist uh, in New York City, and I just did a book called My Pretty Vampire with Fanographics. Uh, I've done a couple other books before that, and I also um, co-host the podcast Trash Twins with Sarah Horrocks. And what's the uh, what's the general content of Trash Twins? It's really just Sarah and I talking about stuff that we like about once a month, um, but it's generally us trying to like justify or find the good in uh, the sort of trashy things that we really like. Um, and it's available everywhere podcasts are heard, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere that fine podcasts can be heard. Um, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Libsyn, um, all over the place. Yeah. So we did an episode on um, Craypax and Minara that was really fun. That might be related to what we're going to talk about today. So you are a Craypax fan? Yeah, Definitely. If you wanted somebody to enter the world of Guido Crepax, where would you, how would you introduce it to them? I would say that the um, first volume of the Fanographics collection, the horror stories, would be a great place to start because you get introduced to his sort of um, flagship character, Valentina, who is a character that he wrote uh, starting in the 50s and I believe all the way up through the 90s. Um, that's sort of his like, uh, Barbarella or Jodel sort of character. Um, she goes through a lot of different uh, iterations. She has a lot of different adventures and it's kind of the closest he ever got to like uh, a superhero type of story. So you get a nice introduction to her in that volume and you also get a look at some of his later work. Uh, he did not stop working um, up until, or he, I should say, excuse me, he continued working um, up until his uh, like 90th year. Um, so he's, there's some really nice like later stuff in there. You've got like a Frankenstein story, which is very cool. Um, a lot of other older sort of stuff from him. That's really nice too. So it's a good mixture of the breadth of his work and he's an artist that was really versatile in terms of his style and in terms of his storytelling. So that volume covers a really good range of, of his oeuvre, as they say. What is it about his work that appeals to you and that, uh, that speaks to you? I think the first thing would be the aesthetic value of it. Um, it doesn't look like any other comics. Um, he's really somebody that, you know, he's a great drafts person and he can communicate a lot, but the language of his work is not 
it's not inherently like a comic sort of language. He's really coming at it as like a visual artist or somebody who's interested in advertising and fashion photography. Um, so that's like instantly appealing to me. I, I think what drew me to him at first was his 60s work um, because, you know, it has all these like fun, groovy, sort of psychedelic elements to it. Um, I love the way that he draws clothing. He obviously loves clothing. He pays a lot of attention to that detail, and I do as well. And so, you know, that is what drew me to him. Um, but then, you know, as you sort of uh, come to see more of his work and understand more of his story, um, you start noticing that, you know, this is somebody who's a really gifted and interesting storyteller. And he's not somebody who, um, he's not going to like very easily guide you through a page. Um, it, it almost has a sort of like Jack Kirby quality to it where there's a lot of simultaneous action and you really have to sort of work to, to read one of his pages. He almost shares more in common with some of the pop art guys where it's like a lot of the same image again and again, a rhythm to the way he sets up panels. Yeah, definitely. Um, he plays with a page in a way that like, I haven't seen a lot of people, especially of the eras he was working in do. Mm -hmm. Storenko yeah. might be the like closest equivalent in the States. I, I think that that's a really great comparison. I think that he's somebody who, um, you know, readability and accessibility, as I mentioned, weren't necessarily the utmost important elements to him in terms of uh, putting a page together. And something that's really interesting too, is that um, a few Months ago, I got to see some Craypax original pages. There was a gallery show in Brooklyn, and they had some pages up. Um, and he, like, he didn't just sit down and, like, complete a story. When you look at his pages, they're all, like, from the same story, they'll be, you know, signed, like, Guido Craypax 73, 69. Like, he worked on these pages, like, uh, non-concurrently, but they all sort of have the same style and flow to them, even when they're worked on in different years. Even as his style is changing, he can still sort of like flip back to the way that he used to work. That's that's a versatility that I don't think is really paralleled in comics. I think when people think about Creepex now and in the States particularly, the first thing that they think of is his more explicit content. What do you think separates his approach to like sexual material more so than um, some of the other European cartoonists in particular, since he had a lot of contemporaries that worked in the same, in the same genre. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I think if you're looking at him versus somebody like, like Milo Minara, um, who I also really love, um, you know, Minara is somebody that will give you the sexually explicit content, but Craypax is a lot more uh, cerebral. So, you know, I was looking through that Fanographics volume earlier, and I also have another um, nice little, like, out-of-print edition of some of his stories, um, like, specifically the erotic stories. And they're not explicit in that same way. Um, it's really just kind of more implication, and it's more sort of taking pleasure in these details of you know, bondage, costuming, the female figure. Um, I think, you know, maybe even more so than like a comics artist, like the artist that I would compare him to the most would be like a, the photographer Araki, the Japanese photographer, who is just really interested in looking at the sort of like physical restraints and bondage and how they sort of interact with flesh and, you know, how you can turn a body when they're bound up. I think he's somebody who's more interested in that than, you know, just sort of um, like explicit pornographic material, you know? I think 
a lot of the the sort of language, the like symbols of S&M that we've come to understand, like this means S&M are not necessarily founded in the Valentina stories, um, but the Valentina stories borrow very heavily um, from that sort of symbolism. So yeah, I do think that it's easy to read, um, you know, maybe something that's a little bit, uh, I don't know, uh, misogynist into that if you if you wanted to, and there's probably a good argument to be made for that. Um, I don't particularly see it that way. And the reason that I don't see it that way is when you look at um, a story like, do you know the, the Bianca story that he did? Um, tell me about Bianca. Bianca is a story that I believe he did in 73, and it's it's just a one-off. It's not one of the Valentina, you know, spin-off characters or like an adaptation of a horror story like, you know, he he has in the um Fanographics volume. But it's the story of a girl who is essentially in like a boarding school and she's having this fantasy about, you know, being bound and being whipped and um all this sort of masochistic stuff. Um but the the first half of this story is all of her fantasies. So um, on the Trash Runes episode, we kind of went through it and we like made a list of every single thing that happens in the comic. And it's like in 30 pages, like 150 things happen in this fantasy. It's crazy. Um, like at one point she's, you know, meeting with like underground pirates and she's in like an ostrich race and like just there's so many things that go on in it. Um, and then in the second half, you see that it's, um, you know, she's just in school and she's having these fantasies because she's being punished for, you know, X, Y, Z thing at the school. Um, and so I think that, you know, the the sort of um, impulse to say that maybe he's misogynist or he's just projecting all of these things, I don't necessarily buy it because this story is sort of about exploring anybody's inner fantasies. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily just him wanting to draw women being whipped over and over again. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you know anything about his audience at the time? Um, I actually don't really know that much about his audience. I know that he, um, you know, was a successful graphic designer as like many of the, you know, successful European cartoonists were at that time. Um, I know that he did advertisements, illustrations, um, and that this was, you know, something that just kind of took off for him. And, you know, he was beloved enough to have a film uh, adaptation for a Valentina story, The Baba Yaga, uh, which is a bananas movie. I highly, highly recommend it. I think it's the greatest uh, comic book film adaptation after Barbarella. It's it's really wild. Is it available? I've never heard of it. Um, it is not the easiest thing to find, but I found it on YouTube. Have you ever seen Danger Diabolique? I have. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Really good. I think um, I think all of the the 60s, 70s sort of Euro uh, comic book adaptations are are great. It's really good. That's a great poster. I mean, can I can I ask what your sort of take on uh, Creepax is? What your feeling is? I think he's a beautiful designer and illustrator. Mm-hmm. I am cold on a lot of the European. Uh, European comics of the time aside from a handful um I think that there's some pacing that just doesn't jive with me like I understand what they're doing and I appreciate the craft involved and kind of like breaking apart time the way they do yeah I get that there is um there's definitely a level of um sort of maybe not necessarily coldness but detachment with 
cray packs. Um, like you said, I, I think it's really just about getting into the illustrations, getting into the figure work, um, enjoying sort of all that simultaneous action. Um, but it's, if you really wanted to sit down and like I did map out everything that happens in a Craypax comic and sort of, you know, connect the dots to put a plot together. Um, it's definitely something that you can do. It's not something that I would really recommend doing because I don't think that that was ever the, the intention with those stories. No. And I think, I mean, when they were originally presented, they were serialized in like small segments, right? Like eight or 10 pages <laughs> at a time. Yes. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the sophistication of, of like everything he's doing. And I really think, I mean, he's just a, a gorgeous illustrator. I definitely appreciate his approach to sexuality. It, there's an adultness to it. And like the, the real sense of the word, like this is a grown up person approaching sensuality and sexuality in a way that I find really admirable and brave. Um, mm -hmm. In any medium, in like film or novels or whatever, he's just saying, here's a thing and you can be into it or you can be turned off by it, but I'm presenting it to you in a really direct way. Mm -hmm. There's, um, there are some figure drawings that he's done that I think are like just completely iconic that, you know, when I think of Craypax, I think of like a handful of, of images, um, a lot of them are bondage, yeah. Um, but there's there's a really great um, like racing scene in one of the Valentina stories um, where you know he's got a bunch of horizontal like small thin horizontal panels and a lot is happening and bikes are sort of exploding and there's a woman who just has like a leather jacket on and she has these super super low rise pants like. This predates like the Alexander McQueen like bum trousers, but they're so low and she's sitting on a chair and just like a little bit of her like ass is hanging out and she's got her legs just in this like very slouchy position watching this race like super lazily and you see her from the back and it's like when I think of Craypax, I think of that because he's so intelligent with the way that he draws clothing to indicate mood he's great with um a figure you can sort of see like like a little bit of the fat coming over the pants and he's so great with mood and gesture and you can tell that she's like seen this race a million times before and she knows how it's going to end and like there's just so much that you can read into it you know so i i love craypacks for little moments like that not every cartoonist has a way with weight in their figures. And there's only a handful I can think of where when you look at a figure, you really feel like where they've shifted their body weight. Mm. Um, Creepax is one of them. Uh, Frank King mm. is another. Um, if you look at those, I mean, even though the figures are are very, you know, cartoonish in a newspaper, early newspaper kind of way, uh, mm -hmm those figures are still like, you can feel somebody leaning on their ankle and kind of, you know, like there's mm -hmm. a real momentum and a movement to those figures that like, as much as I love a Jack Kirby or a Steve Ditko, there's not necessarily a lot of weight to the figures that they have on a page. Yeah. There's a lot of dynamism and there's a lot of, you know, explosive energy, but just the idea of a figure kind of in repose and in recline where like they're actually leaning back on the, butt of the palm of their hand you know yeah that's really interesting that's a great point um i think you know artists that are coming out of illustration or a fine art background tend to nail that a little bit better 
and it's crazy with Creepax because his figures aren't necessarily. It's not like he. It's he's coming from like a life drawing world. Like they're stylized figures. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so for him to be able to get that kind of like weight and motion and mood out of them is really, uh, really impressive to me. I think that comes out of the out of the fashion angle because if you, you know, if you look at really good fashion photography, if you're looking at, I don't know, Richard Avedon, who was working then, or uh, like a Mizell's or a Knight, like, you know, you're going to, you're going to see just how much stock those photographers put into their models in terms of, of making sure that they're cutting an interesting figure. So I think right around then is when fashion photography was sort of starting to change. Um, and looking at models that were a little bit uh, more real, less sort of like pageant-like. Um, so I think he may have been responding to that a little bit as well. How would you sell another human if somebody did not know anything about comics and you really wanted them to introduce them to to this cartoonist? What would you say? Like, how would you put it in front of them and get them to read it? Uh, get them to read Creepax? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I don't know that I would be able to. <laughs> I think it's, I think he's tricky and I think that the work is slippery. Um, but I think, you know, I think the end would just be all the, all the sort of things that we talked about. Like it, it doesn't look like anything else. Um, he is a bizarre sort of linguist in comics and you're not going to read anything like, you know, he had ever written. And also it just, it looks fucking cool. Like, do you want to look at someone that's fucking cool? Then read Guido Crepex. That would be my um my very intelligent response to that. I guess. I, well, it's. Not, I mean, it's not unintelligent. Looking cool <laughs> is important. It but, is. Um, I think, <laughs> like, part of the idea is that so much of the immediate response to Crepex as an idea, as mm -hmm. a not necessarily his work, but just as a cartoonist, as a concept, is bondage porn. Or yes. what could be immediately read as misogynistic imagery. Mm -hmm. But there's value beyond that. And without no, I don't know enough about it to like argue that with any sort of, with any expertise. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting to hear somebody who's really studied it, put it out and say, this is why this content has value. And it's not writing it off um, as just, whatever it looks like on the surface is a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think that if somebody does want to write it off on the surface, like if, if they do just want to engage with it on that sort of level, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. Um, or, you know, I don't think they're doing like any kind of disservice to their life if they're going to do that. Um, I have a hard time decoding images in that way. Uh, you know, even somebody like, um, like Arkham, who, you know, is sort of like so contentious on the internet right now. And people love to be mad at Arkham, the person, and sometimes they have a hard time engaging in the work and I get it. Um, you know, it, it's hard for me to just cast aside those images because they are really powerful images for whatever reason. So I'm always going to want to understand, um, an image that's powerful, be it for the good, be it for the not so good. What you have in those stories are, you know, yes, women being sort of pushed to their limits and tested, um, but they don't really go into any areas that I think caught would raise any flags. 
Um, they're really just beautiful images and nobody's going to get on board with Craypax and be like, this is how we need to start treating women now. I, I just don't see it as anything that is, is going to like actively hurt people. Sure. Is it great? Maybe not. <laughs> but no. I also don't see it as anything like actively harmful. Well, I also, I mean, I agree that I don't think anybody needs to like be force fed Craypax, but I think that there's a dismissiveness sometimes when people see certain types of content where they say that's, that's misogynist. Nope. Doesn't need to exist. And it's not mm. just a, that's not for me conversation. It's a, that's wrong. And if you like it, you're part of the problem. I don't know. I, I do think that if you wanted to do a deep dive and really read into these stories, I do think you can find qualities that are redeeming, maybe even borderline feminist, or at least a friend to feminism. Um, but I also don't, I don't really think it's fair to put that reading on him given like the, the context of the work and when he was working. Um, I don't know. It, it's tricky, but I don't really see him as like a big provocateur. I don't, I don't read him that way. And I think that um, more so than, than trying to push, you know, edgy content, you can just say, like I said before, this just goes back to being fucking cool. You know, the stuff that Valentina and her friends are wearing are the things that people are wearing out in fucking Coachella right now. Um, yeah, is it a bunch of women being whipped in a bunch of different places? Sure, but the Valentina stories focus on, you know, a woman protagonist. Craypack started out writing, uh, you know, the male superhero and then wrote Valentina as a sidekick and then realized Valentina was way more fucking interesting. So she's got her own adventures and her own, you know, skill set, and she does things that she wants to do. You know, she has sex with multiple partners. Nobody is bothered by it. Um, she has her own sexual agency. She's, you know, cute as hell. She's great to follow through a story. So yeah, I, I would put it that way more than I would put, you know, Oh, here's, you know, another Minara. I, I don't think that that's true. So that's a good segue into Milo Minara. Who's another Italian cartoonist of note. Um, do you want to talk through your experience with him a little bit? My experience with Minara, you know, it, it's sort of a bummer, but it starts at that Spider-Woman cover um, because there was such a sort of fervor about it. And I really loved it. I thought that the art was gorgeous. Um, obviously, you know, perhaps not the right editorial decision for that cover, given sort of the tone of that comic and, you know, whatever. I, I mean... I get it. I get it. I get it. But I, I love that cover. And I love that it still is making waves now for whatever reason. I mean, when's the last time that a comic cover had so much of an impact? So I'm like, oh, let me let me study Manara and see if I can um, sort of glean anything from his process that I can uh, use for my own work <laughs> to maybe cause trouble. And I keep trying to cause trouble and nobody will let me. But anyway, um, so I... Uh, you know, picked up um, the first volume of Minara Erotica um, from the Dark Horse collection that we were talking about earlier, which is all of the click stories and then I think one or two other little um, short stories. And I loved it. Um, obviously, you know, completely different from Craypacks, but they do have a few things in common that I really appreciate. Um, I tend to prefer Craypacks just because I like his style a lot more. I like the dreaminess of it, but I do appreciate that Minara is somebody that can nail a mood and a specific place and his anatomy and his storytelling. I mean, he's just, he's a really proficient uh, comics artist and storyteller. Um, so I like that a lot about him. 
but yeah, I think, um, I think I sort of came to him in this, like, in that sort of storm of controversy over his um, Spider-Woman cover. But I, I like the Click Comics series a lot, um, what I've read of it. I think that it's really funny and interesting to see his, like, celebrity obsession play out through those comics, particularly the later ones where he's obviously obsessed with Angelina Jolie um, and is continually drawing him in those comics and naming characters Angelina, if I'm not mistaken. Um so he definitely has more of like a grasp on some kind of reality over Craypax, who was purely just sort of like conjuring images and creating characters. Manara is somebody who's who's interested in the real world, but he's also um, somebody who can kind of find the space between the real world, real world and his like bananas id, you know? Yes. Well, he's not just uh, it's not just the real world as we know it. His attention to detail and research in historical stuff is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. If he, I mean, everybody fixates on how he draws like figures, which is outstanding. But if he's going to draw a clipper ship from the 1700s, it's going to be the greatest clipper ship you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. If he's drawing like a flintlock rifle, it's the greatest flintlock rifle you've ever seen. He's incredible when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, he is also, um, the funny thing about that is, is yeah, he's going to pay so much attention to that particular detail, but his women tend to, the parts of the women that he's really interested in are pretty much exactly the same between characters. They all have that same sort of set of lips. Um, they all have that same sort of sleepy, gaze about them they even kind of have sometimes the same hair although you know the period just sort of dictates that like when he's working in the 80s versus the 90s the hairstyle changes his figures don't have a lot of um a lot of range a lot of uh differentiation between them no not necessarily um so the fantasy stays, stays the same for him yes but uh the world's the world's shift and change i, I think at this point in his career I would not chalk that up to like hackiness as much as like a fixation on a certain ideal, which mm -hmm. is either good or bad, depending on how you look at it in terms of craft. But I think at this point he's done enough work that it becomes interesting to consider that mm -hmm. as opposed to this is a guy who only knows how to draw one figure. Mm. I think, um, you know, if if the sort of fine art world equivalent to Craypax is uh, Araki, I would say that the fine art world equivalent to Minara is like a Jeff Koons, like somebody who they they're obsessed with a certain type of shape and a certain type of silhouette. And they're obsessed with the way that that like takes on light and sort of interacts with other figures around it. Um, and they're they're just so willing to produce something that's so close to the original, but use sort of different ideas and materials to get there um and i would say like the jeff coons like photo series made in heaven like all of the stuff with chicolina like it just makes me think of uh uh minara now because it's like just these beautifully staged pornographic scenes um where he's not afraid to give you you know a sort of intense close-up on anatomy particularly female anatomy um but just in this very beautiful sort of like gauzy setting. His storytelling chops, 
his attention to like not just historical detail but historical verisimilitude and so much of his later work that was republished here like uh click in particular it's fun but there's a lightness to it when Mm -hmm. he wants to bring the gravitas he knows how to do it um and it's it's a bummer to think that you know a quick Google search is only going to bring up people rolling their eyes about his sexy figures or whatever. Mm-hmm. There was also a really distressing stretch where people were making fun of how he doesn't know how to draw women. Because yeah, that, that particular image is kind of distended and whatever, but it's art. And that's the whole fucking thing. The whole thing is that it doesn't look like real life because it's not a photograph. It's a drawing. It's art. And God forbid anybody try to like invoke mood with a figure. That's, that's crazy to me. (laughs) I think, um, and this is going to veer slightly off topic for a second, but I, I think that more than anything, people were just participating in the marketing for a major corporation more than, you know, helping. I don't know. I think people thought they were like helping women out by pointing out that like Minara wasn't the right person for this thing. And that like, you know, this cover is offensive and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you didn't, that didn't do anything for me. I'm still like, I'm still making 70 cents to your dollar. All you did was tell Marvel, please don't market to us that way. That, that doesn't do anything for anybody. So I don't know. There there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of strange sort of morality to that and, um, like virtuousness and saying that that was bad, that just really, was shocking to me more than the cover. I mean, that, that reaction was shocking to me. All of the click stories are about sort of lobbing this bomb of female sexuality into polite society. And nobody is able to handle that sort of, um, unrepressed, crazy, uh, you know, uninhibited female sexuality and trying to sort of hide that and, and stow that away is really the driving force behind click. Um, Yes, are there some problematic elements to it? Absolutely. But when you really look at it, that's sort of the crux of what's going on in those stories. And yes. I think that that just gets reflected in, in a cover like that, you know? And and that same sort of phenomenon is, like, literally happening now. It's very, very strange. I find that disturbing. I don't know. I, I find the reaction to something like that and something to the reaction to like, I don't know, a Scott Pilgrim or something where it's like, Oh, you have to like fight all of these ex-boyfriends who like still have some possession over a woman that they slept with to like win her. Like that's way more offensive to me. You know, just looking at it from a sort of functional point of view, I would challenge anybody. Please don't tell me about it, but I would challenge anybody to read one of the click stories and find the part that you're supposed to masturbate to. Like there's no, there's no money shots. There's no, um, there's not even like a lot of penetration necessarily. Do you know what I mean? It's all, um, it's very sort of specific stimulation, but nothing like you would see in sort of traditional pornography. No. And it's also, I mean, the thing with click is it's a sex farce in a way that the U S doesn't necessarily have a tradition of. (laughs) Well, I mean, think about, um, you know, think about what was, was like basically mainstream cinema in Italy at that time. You still had, you go to a movie theater and go see a giallo and go see a ton of nudity and murder 
Um, and it was fine. And yeah, you know, Fellini and Antonioni were happening at that time as well, but you could still go see like a pretty hardcore grindhouse picture at that time. Well, and there were like exports, like, um, the Emmanuel stories, like softcore was something that you could just go, go watch. Sure. And the Fellini and Antonioni did their fair share of, you know, adult and, and sophisticated content along those lines. That's true. They had no, uh, they had no problem having sexual material in their films. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is hilarious to think about because I think that we have this um, not necessarily fair understanding of Fellini here, where you know he's a sort of highbrow, not I don't, I don't want to say like clean, um, but somebody that was working for you know the purposes of art and art theater, and you you know we tend to write out films like city of women uh and sort of just look at you know eight and a half and um la strada sort of the the cleaner pictures that he did but he he liked his smut too and he loved whipping women most of his film feature whipping women so when i write my big piece on it i'm gonna include those as well so where would you suggest somebody start if they wanted to dip into the world of menorah that goes beyond the uh internet drama (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, w- I would go to the Dark Horse erotica collections. I think that's where, I think that's where the work really shines. And I think that the context that I mentioned for those stories is so strong in those books. Um, you'll really get a good picture of of his sort of um, the whole of his work as well as the time that he was working in. So yeah, I would definitely recommend those. I love the click stories. I really, really do. There are a lot of parts of them where I'm just sort of like, ah, I kind of skip over some pages. <laughs> um, but I think on the whole, they're really remarkable cartooning and really remarkable storytelling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna vouch for the uh, Hugo Pratt um, co-written uh, historical epics as well. Like I mentioned, I think those are um, absolutely worth checking out, and I think they're available in the Dark Horse collections as well. Um, yes. But yeah, all of that stuff is really beautifully presented too. Those are really great. Much like the Crepax um, edition from Fantagraphics, it's a really premier like presentation of work that previously was only available in kind of you know easily bendable soft covers in the back of the comic shop. Yeah, definitely. So what else? Uh, you mentioned your new book from Fantagraphics. What else have you got going on that you want people to know about? Um, well, we have Trash Twins, where we talk about uh, cartoonists like Minara and Craypax. Um, we also did an episode on Sin City, um, the whole of Sin City, the whole uh, Frank Miller run, um, which was really fun. And yeah, I don't know. It's a great, it's a good podcast. Everyone should listen to it. It's, um, I don't know, it's very smart, just like me. Um, no, but I also... Um, you know, write for the comics journal as well. Um, every now and then I write a piece for Sledist and, um, I used to do erotic comics myself for Sledist.com and I'm currently working on, um, putting together a collection of all of those. So I'll have more details about it. Um, but that will be really fun. Um, are any of your older books available or currently in print? Yes. Um, Operation Margarine, you can get from Ad House Books. And uh, Nurse Nurse was published by Sparkplug Books. But you can get it from Alternative Comics now. Cool. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. This was really fun. We'd like to thank Katie for taking the time to talk to us. 
You can see more of her work online at katieskelly.tumblr.com and check out her articles at Sluttist and the Comics Journal. The CBLDF podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like yourself and with a grant from the Gaiman Foundation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to your friends. Send us an email at info at cbldf.org and or leave us a review on iTunes. To find out more about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, please visit cbldf.org. Thanks so much for listening.